Today's guest is Eric Kaufman, who is a professor of political science at Birkbeck College at London University. He has written several books of which White Shift, Populism, Immigration and the Future of White Majorities, which came out in 2018, is one of the more interesting books that have come out in recent years. It is about the demographic change of the Western world, about the reactions this gives rise to, uh, about right-wing populism and its opposite, left-wing modernism. The last time Eric was on this podcast in June 2021, we focused our discussion on this subject. Today we talk more about the threats to academic freedom and what can be done about it. And this is something Eric has been working on a lot lately. And he's been vocal in defense of the new freedom of speech bill, which the Tory government in Britain proposed recently. His argument is that conservatives or people on the right need to be more active in combating the left's institutional takeover that is happening at basically all major institutions. It was a delight to talk to Eric and the podcast could have been much longer, but do you like what he says? Then give him a follow on Twitter or check him out at sneps.net, which is S-N-E-P-S dot net, where all his public talks and writings are collected. Now on to today's guest. You're listening to Rakhöger with me, Ivar Arpi. Welcome, Eric Kaufman, to Rock Höger. Ivar, thanks for having me. Having you back, actually, because you were one of my first guests on this podcast, I think. Uh, like, uh, now it's almost almost two years ago, or uh, one and a half years ago, I think. Well, I'm honored to, honored to be to be one of the chosen few, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you really are. I I have, I'm rare, rarely have uh, guests back. So, uh, but the last time you were on, we spoke about uh, your book White Shift and uh, changing uh, demographies of the Western world, and uh, and 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 that subject was really. Uh, it was, it was really uh, something that was being debated to a, to a large degree in Sweden back then. It, it still is, sort of, but the debates, have the, the specific debates have died down. What I particularly like about your book is that you managed to write about a very controversial subject in a way that doesn't, I, I think this at least, that it doesn't inflame or polarize more. Uh, and you also present data and uh, different, uh, like how you can, um, probabilities for which future we will head to and and and, uh, and such. So it's a constructive book. But I received a lot of criticism for having you on on the show. And I still do. It's one of the, like, recur- you, you, you always, after a while, when you've been in the public sphere, you, you gather, uh, people think that they have certain uh, uh, points that they pinpoint they can pinpoint you on and then they're like a tweet <laughs> a, a tweet you wrote three years ago and it always comes up right and, uh, the podcast i made with you is a point that always comes up uh like oh, look at this uh, he's um, he had a peddler in the in the conspiracy theory of uh replacement theory on his podcasts and that's a recurring criticism so i just wanted you to uh 
not uh, not fight my battles uh, but maybe is this like a are you are you that controversial because i didn't think so when i had you on and i didn't think you said any anything particularly controversial really no i mean i've written about the the whole idea of the great replacement i did a piece in unheard and and it, it it's a, it's one of these ones where you ha- and so you have all of these subtleties right so if there if if by great replacement you mean uh, this idea of a conspiracy of leftists or the World Economic Forum or somebody to deliberately change the ethnic composition of Western countries. I mean, I think that's that's ridiculous nonsense. And, and But then you what you have is, of course, the reality of ethnic change, for example, which is as much of a left wing trope as a right wing trope, you know, so I talk about this in the uh, in the paper, you know, Michael Boer saying the drop in the white population is the greatest day in American history. I mean, so you have you have all of this going on, you know, you have the ethnic change. Now, I my, my view is it's very much a it arises almost as a it comes out of decisions taken by often progressive governments, not always um, their motivations, however, are not actually to change the ethnic composition usually it's usually about they don't want it they want to look like they're being nice and moral uh, and, and so as a result they open things up and that accelerates the change and that you know leads to now you can call this term replacement is another one um demographers yeah. and use it all the time so yeah I, I i know i have addressed that i don't am i very controversial i don't know i mean i'm, I'm certainly giving talks at all of you know, the major universities, Oxford's and, and places, you know, Cornell and all these sorts of places, University of Southern California. I'm just trying to sort of think of the ones I've done in the last six months or so. Um, yeah, uh, I follow you. You, you One can uh, I recommend following you on uh, podcaster. I do. And then you can yeah. catch up on uh, at least an assortment of your uh, your speeches and uh, conferences when they are recorded. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're, they're, and they're, they're all on my website as well, yeah. snaps.net, uh, S-N-E-P-S.net. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, but the replacement theories, I, I've been accused of, uh, of like, being a proponent of it. And, uh, uh, of course, y- you could say that I am in a very limited sense in that there is a, sh- a change, a major demographic change, and... There are consequences, and you can you can uh, what you do in your book to a much a much deeper degree than I have done in my articles is that you show how and at what pace and also what arguments are being given at different times. So I mean, so in that regard, if 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 that is in that narrow sense, if that's what you mean by it, but oftentimes it's as you say, oftentimes you mean like. A, there's a, a, a dark, uh, like an esoteric group who, who plan this and want this, and they orchestrate it. Orchestrate it can be the Bilderberg Group, or it can be the World Economic Forum. It can be George Soros. Oftentimes, right. it, it's also a question of a Jewish, uh, like a Jewish conspiracy. Not mm-hmm. always, but it's always, almost always, uh, and all that I don't believe in. And it, one of the reasons why I don't believe it is that it's very hard to even plan going on a hike with friends. Like, uh, <laughs> like we, are, we, are, we are four friends and we often go hiking together. And it's, it's, an, it's a nightmare just to plan and just to get people to bring like a sleeping bag. 
And if four people, we are not, we are not uh, more, uh, we are, we are basically, of course, we are idiots because we can't plan a hiking trip together. But I mean, we're not more of, more of an idiot. I'm not more of an idiot than the next man. So the level of competence that would be required to orchestrate this on a world, on a global scale and do it simultaneously, it's just not part of human nature. It's not just not possible. It's, it's right. impossible for that reason as well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I would say. Yeah, but I think it is interesting that you know left-wing commentators can use terms like the browning of America, the transformation of America, you know, all these sorts mm. of terms and celebrate it, and never be accused of talking about great replacement. So, okay, that's fair enough. I mean, if you want to limit it to conspiratorial conspiracy theories, that's fine. But yet, if someone who's critical of the pace of immigration raises the exact same points they're accused of being great play i think it's just intellectually dishonest really yeah and you can see in uh, many of the uh, many of the uh, leading um politicians in the democratic party as you say they they've been like celebrating it celebrating right. the change and we've been doing it in sweden as well like we celebrate the, the increasing diversity and it's wonderful uh, and then if someone <laughs> says i I see the same thing, but I, I see it's not as benign in, in every respect. Then it's awful. And uh, yeah. I, I did like a, one of the most celebrated texts uh, two years ago, I think, or one year ago, when uh, a cultural, an author and cultural writer, Jens Liljestan, he wrote that he, he, he took, uh, drove cabs on a book tour all over Sweden, and everyone who drove him uh, was foreign-born, and the cities he came to, uh, in the city centers, foreign-born were sitting uh, and dominating the city squares. And he said that we Swedes are guests here in uh, in this part of the country. Uh, and it's wonderful that it's living again because of these people. And then I wrote something similar, but I said that uh, uh, it's, it's this is this explains why people are voting for the Sweden Democrats to a larger degree because they are critical of this change. It's going too rapidly. And uh, I, I, of course, uh, was very heavily criticized by Jens Lillestrand, for example. Right. Uh, <laughs> so you had the wrong attitude. Same set of facts, but the wrong attitude. That's basically yes. all, the, all it means. And then so they will use, they expand the definition of racism to try and shut you down. Um, yeah. and, and that's what I object to, is this stretching of this concept. They'll narrow it when they're talking about it, then stretch it out for you when you're talking about exactly the same phenomenon. Yeah, and I was uh, hoping we could, this would segue into another discussion that I know you are, uh, something you're, you're working with or on, and that's the freedom of speech bill that is, has been presented in, uh, in Britain, where you're based. And uh, it has to do with academic freedom and... Uh, it's something we are, we have a new government in Sweden, so it's uh, also something that pertains to us is how Britain handles this, because our new minister who's in charge of this is doing an investigation right now. Uh, he's starting it uh, to see how deep the problem goes uh, in, in the Swedish academia. So could you just like paint a picture of why this bill was proposed and uh, if it's a good bill and uh, like describe the problem with academic freedom in Britain now. 
Yeah, I think Britain is sort of um, representing a, a it, it's a country where there is this problem. But of course, this is a problem that you see across the West and particularly the English speaking West, but also I think Northern Europe. Um, so just to give you some, uh, you know, I could pull out anecdotes like uh, people who've been canceled, like Kathleen mm-hmm. Stock, who got hounded out of her position at University of Sussex or Noah Carl, who got uh, fired from a, a Cambridge fellowship. I mean, that, but rather than going through these anecdotes, um, what I've done is I've done a series of surveys. Um, so I did a report for the think tank called Policy Exchange, which is the main right of center think tank in Britain on academic freedom in the UK. We had a survey from YouGov, and YouGov has a panel of 500,000 in in the United Kingdom, of which there are about a 1,000 academics who happen. These are people who take surveys uh, for YouGov, which is a very large survey firm. So these are a 1,000 people who just happen to be on the YouGov platform. We got about three-quarters of them in our sample. Um, So these are academics or retired academics, and so we're able to survey a relatively accidental sample uh, that is not handpicked, not self-selected. Now, what did we find? A, a number of things. So, for example, um, the left-right split in the social sciences and humanities, it's about nine on the left for every one on the right in terms of active academic teaching staff. That one out of ten on the right, uh, about something like seven out of ten said their departments were hostile climates for for, for uh, their political beliefs. Um, five, five out of ten said they self-censored in teaching research and academic discussion. Now, in the U.S., those numbers are, are slightly higher, so it's about seven out of ten. In Canada, it's about seven out of ten in survey work I've done who are self-censoring. So it's this massive self-censoring that's going on amongst people who don't have the orthodox political views of the majority uh, of faculty members. So that was a lot of the focus was on academic faculty and how they are essentially restricting their speech in many ways. Now, we also asked about, have you been punished by your institution or your department for things you've taught, written, etc.? And that was less. I mean, it was sort of more like something on the order of one in 10 academics, a little bit higher for those on the right, it's about one in five. Uh, so we've got a certain level of punishment, but the biggest thing is, uh, and that, it, the biggest thing, of course, is people self-censoring. Now, one of the reasons for that is you've also got a lot of <clears throat> political discrimination. One in three British academics would not hire a known supporter of the Leave side in the Brexit referendum. Um, mm. And so that, again, is an example of where, because of this discrimination, if you have any sense, you're not going to mention that you voted Leave, even if you did, because then your chance of getting hired, promoted, um, getting published is going to be a lot lower. So you have this climate of uh, repression, and that's partly a result of political prejudice on the part of progressives. And then you have, now, when it comes to cancel culture, on the one hand, some good news, it's only one in 10 British academics would support firing a controversial professor who's doing reporting controversial findings on race, gender, and sexuality. But... Uh, about 40% aren't sure if they would oppose or support plan to fire. So they're on the mm. fence. And that's a very important group. Uh, they don't uh, they don't support cancel culture, but they don't really oppose it either. And so this is kind of one of the big problems. Uh, another problem we have is a lot of majority of academics will support 
policies like mandatory diversity statements for applying for a job, right, which says, how are you going to advance equity, diversity, and inclusion? And they think there's nothing wrong with forcing people to have one of these statements as a condition of being able to apply for a job or a grant. Um, 60% of academics in the UK, Australia, the US, uh, mainly social sciences, would support these. Uh, now, in Sweden, in Sweden, we have uh, like all, basically all uh, funding for research goes through the four governmental agencies who are funding different areas, mainly different areas. There are some overlap, uh, and they are include. They have like specific questions which pertains to this, like uh, how how are you going to apply a gender perspective in your research? Right. If, and then they added if applicable, but everybody gets the memo like you should have this perspective. <laughs> And also in the, like the composition of the research, uh, research body, like the, the, the research applying for it, the research group, they must have, like, if, if they don't have the right mix of gender or if they don't have diversity, they have to account for why that is in that right. case. And they get a lower score. So sometimes you, you have, I, I've, I've spoken to a lot of academics uh, when I wrote my last book. Uh, and and uh, what they do, some of them, is that they go to like a colleague, a woman, and uh, yeah. some, oftentimes, and they say, like, could you just be a uh, a part of this project? And uh, sometimes the, the woman knows, like, okay, so I'm being just a an apron, uh, I'm right. just being a, a stooge for this. And they some of them are fine with it, and others are not. Like right. they, know they, they know that they, they, some of them think like, hey, hate the, hate the game, not the player. Right, but, right, right. Uh, so we have this. These include. We have everybody has to go through these hoops, jump through these yes. hoops. And and what's important here is that these academics they don't. If you say should an academic who's who says that diversity is bad for society, uh, you know, finds that and reports that, should they be fired? Very few academics will say yes. Only about one in ten. But when you say mm. something like. Um, Oh, should we have a mandatory equity diversity statement for a job? By more than two to one, they'll support that. 60% will support mm. that. Now, it's interesting. So I've, I've also asked, you know, should there be quotas for race and gender on reading lists? This is what's called the decolonization of uh, reading lists, uh, which mm. is a very political term. And again, you'll get about 45% support against 32, 33% opposition. Uh, and so they're supporting things that sound good because they seem nice and they seem like they're helping the downtrodden. I mean, that is really the motivation that's going on here. Now, what's interesting is you then say, okay, somebody refuses. Let's say somebody refuses to change their reading list because on, on free speech grounds, what should be the punishment? Because this is something they don't think about. They they only think about the nice, bright, oh, we're helping the, the poor down yeah. child. They don't think about, now we have to punish people who don't comply, <laughs> right? Yeah. So when you, now you get them to think about it and you say, should this peace person be fired? And very yeah. few uh, or taken off the course. So most of them will step back from harsh punishments for yeah. not going along with this agenda, Right. But most of them will still support certain kinds of social pressure, make them go take diversity training, things which are actually quite authoritarian. So even mm -hmm. though they are personally, they don't think of themselves as authoritarians, they support policies whose underbelly is very authoritarian and they're willing to look the other way. And I think that's a lot of what occurs in the system is you have academics who believe they are liberals, 
but are tacitly endorsing illiberal mm. uh, policies. Well, but what's interesting is I, I find if you ask one pointedly, would you support firing of someone who's just uh, using their academic freedom, then the, the liberalism activates. But, right. uh, but if you ask the question in other ways, uh, you, you could get them to go along with a lot of things because it doesn't activate the, if I wonder uh, to use Jonathan Haidt's, uh, like, you, you know, the, the six dimensions of moral. Uh, yes, moral foundations. Moral yeah. foundations, yes. Yeah. Uh, then you have the uh, oppression, freedom, one of them. And, and you like, it's like that, that when that is activated, then they will, most will support academic freedom. But when, when it's just care, harm or something like that, then that that trumps the, the, the liberty dimension altogether. Yeah, that's a really good point is that when you make the care harm salient, they always go for that over, or not always, but, mm. but a majority will. I mean, a good question is, do you support political correctness because it protects disadvantaged groups or do you oppose mm. it because it stifles free speech? Mm. In, in our survey for UK social science, humanities, academics, 75% support political correctness, 20% oppose under that definition. Whereas in the general public, it's 47% opposed versus 37 in favor. So it just shows that compared to the general public, the, you know, academics are far, far more likely to, to prioritize care harm over free speech. Yeah. And um, one of the criticisms Towards, we'll get to the bill uh, as well. But one of the criticisms uh, when you bring up cancel culture, we had a our new minister of education, as I mentioned, he's he's part of the Liberal Party in the in the uh, right wing coalition that uh, right of center coalition that is forming the government formed the government now in Sweden, and uh, his name is Mats Passion, and uh, was a, a big documentary or uh, a documentary with a series of cases from Swedish academia, which had been publicized before by me, for example. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but it, when, when it comes on the big screen and it's a documentary, it, it, it catches the eye of more people, of course. And um, so he said that we will look into it. We will have an investigation of the cancel culture in Sweden. And then people said, but how many people does this really pertain to? I mean, the, because there are uh, a few very publicized cases, but they are not very many. And, and then you say like, okay, so this is a very peripheral problem. And that's been one of the criticisms towards uh, when you've, I've seen the criticism uh, targeted your way uh, when you've been in the British debate. So how, how does one respond to that, that these are as you said, these are just anecdotes. Right. So there's a couple of things. I mean, one is um, you can track the frequency of these incidents, which has risen dramatically since the first decade of the 2000s, uh, whether that be no platformings, whether that be targeting of professors. So even though the total number as a per percentage of total academic staff or students is very small, mm. uh, the number has gone up. Now, so the question then becomes, well, each one of these incidents has a ripple effect. So this is the perhaps the most important factor is the chilling effect of any particular incident is enormous. And mm. we've now got data and I, this isn't released, so, but I, I may as well, I can drop you one particular data point. We, we have now asked uh, U.S. academics 
if they are fearful of losing their job uh, or their job or reputation for um, things they may say or, or online posts being misinterpreted. Um, and among conservative inclined academics, this is a very large majority who are fearful of uh, this happening to them. They're worried, at least to some degree. Um, so we have a sort of four, four response category, very worried, quite worried, not very worried, not at all worried. So those are, who are in the top two are, you know, it's seven out of ten uh, mm. on the right. So we're talking about a massive chill that is being experienced by academics. Now, among students, there's also a significant chill. So if you take the chilling effect of these things, that's, I mean, depending on the size of your system, I mean, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of academics uh, in the United States. We're talking about millions of students. Now, in a smaller population, whatever that number is, but it is a probably a majority of anyone who leans conservative. Mm. So I guess what I would say is the, the big problem is that. And what that means yeah. is people are not saying certain things, not researching certain things, not giving their opinion and discussion. It's distorting the entire truth-seeking mission of the university, as well as suppressing people's freedoms, uh, academic freedom. So that is, I, that would be my response initially to those who try and minimize these effects. Now, of course, it is also true that a lot of this is not coming from institutions, but it is coming from political prejudice from peers mm. uh, who are threatening you on social media. And, and that's another part of this discussion. So there's kind of the top-down, what I call the vertical institutional punishment and then the peer-to-peer -peer horizontal political discrimination. I think this is my, I'm not sure if it is, but I, 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 it might be a difference between the Anglo-Saxon countries and Sweden here because what I find is many of the institutions are enacting government because the universities in Sweden are not uh, independent. They are government agencies. So they are enacting politics. Uh, and so if, if the government says you have to recruit, you, you have to have uh, recruit 40% uh, women as professors until 2040, for example, then they have to do that. And they have to enact okay. how, so the, how the recruitment policies, and they have to change that. There are, there are a few institutions that are independent in Sweden, but there is... What, what I've found when I look, when you look at them, they're even worse when it comes to identity policy. Right. They, they, they could have gone the other way, but it seems like they are doing more. And it's the same with, um, when you have, um, like if you, you, you say something as a teacher and you, you get a complaint and then you get investigated and you might get a, Get, get, get fired or get warned or something like that, ostracized in some way, or you get, you lose the course, you cannot teach on that course anymore. Right. Uh, so that is something that is, uh, what I find is uh, people are, are uh, afraid that something like that might happen. And, and actually in Sweden, we have, if it's one student is uh, complaining, and says that I've been uh, violated in, uh, because of my race, gender identity, sex, uh, sexual orientation or, or, or something like that. Uh, the university has an uh, obligation to investigate it and make a formal investigation. So uh, you, 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 you come to the situation, some, some of these are not publicized, of course, uh, but uh, like teachers are sitting 
with one of these uh, people who are political commissary, commissar, commissar, one of the a member of the political commissariat there are in each and every university now that has to do with uh, implementing discrimination laws, uh, gender mainstreaming, and, uh, and, and these are, then you have to, they are basically the people who are leading these investigations, and they are also the people who are, uh, have the power over you as an academic in the end, sometimes. Well, that sounds, yeah, I mean, it's interesting the way it sounds like Sweden operates. I, I think there's a positive and a negative there. I mean, the, the negative clearly is the universities have been politicized, you know, overtly politicized. I think the positive sounds, however, that if you get a conservative government, let's say, in, they should have the levers to reverse all of that very quickly if they have the political stomach. Now, I don't know what hmm. the legislative framework is around equality law in Sweden, because one of the problems in the U.S. Uh, to some degree is some of the provisions of the civil rights law that's developed since 1965 or, or in Britain since 2010, the Equalities Act, is unclear uh, about some of these terms like hostile environment and bullying. And, and so uh, if you say a woman is an adult human female as an academic, uh, does that mean that uh, somebody who's taking your class might feel unsafe and who's trans and therefore you have mm. uh, you violated the spirit of the law? It's vague. It's too vague right now. Now, what you need is the government to, to essentially issue guides that clarifies that actually freedom of speech takes precedence over this mm. and it's only this is the threshold you know that is the kind of thing governments need to do i'd mm. say in the swedish case you would need also the government to be very proactive in saying um we're, we're going to sort of roll back uh this dei D- diversity equity inclusion we're going to define it this way and not that way mm. uh, but you would need the political will to do that well i mean one of the best ways i would say as a as a politician, but maybe also as a parent or a mani- manipulative partner, abusive partner, is to say that you are for freedom while you're actually against it. And you, so you say overtly that I'm just doing this to be nice, but you're not being nice. Or I'm I'm very for, I'm doing this to protect academic freedom, but you're actually not doing it to protect. So you, you use these positive code words and you do something else and then it's harder to criticize you because then it sounds like you are the one criticizing academic freedom. So what, what I find here in, uh, when you speak about academic freedom in, in Sweden, oftentimes you are the one being uh, criticized as wanting to be like Viktor Orban is a, is a, <laughs> is a is a famous uh, like word that always comes up urbanization like this is a the first shot being fired in in an urbanization of Sweden if you're saying that you don't want uh, all uh, all researchers to uh, <laughs> have to show that how they apply a gender perspective even if it's physics then you are doing you're going in the direction of urban and i always say that i'm I'm protecting, I, I, I'm for the academic freedom in, in Hungary. So the, 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 the university he closed down. I'm, I'm, I want that to be, that was wrong and I don't want anything to be forbidden. Uh, but is that the case in, in Britain as well? That like you, have you been criticized that you are actually not protecting back infant? You're doing something else entirely? Well, well, yeah. I mean, this is sort of one of the classic uh, arguments, right, is to say that if you are in favor of government reforming or intervening in these institutions, compromising their autonomy, 
then you are an Orban type and you are going against liberalism. And the problem with that argument is that society is really three layers and not two. And this is one of these things that you know, shouldn't need explaining, but it does. So you've got government institutions and individuals. So there's two forms of censorship. You can have the government, like in China, telling you what you can't say. That's We've had that form through much of human history, government censorship. But you can also have pro- what's called private censorship, which is the middle layer, the institutions are what is suppressing your free speech. And in a recent paper, Jonathan Turley at George Washington University, uh, he says that private censorship is now actually a considerably greater threat than government censorship to free speech in Western countries like the U.S. And so the question becomes, what do you do about private censorship? Um, and certainly in institutions that are controlled and funded by government, Government can be the protector of the individuals from the institutions. So government actually can protect human freedom by preventing institutions from censoring people. And that is really what this bill, the Higher Education Freedom Bill in Britain, is about. It's about preventing universities from suppressing free speech of individuals. And so that, in that sense, is protecting individuals. Now, this is all in keeping with the law. In fact, the law is being violated by universities, so this is essentially about enforcing the law as it exists, people's rights as they exist. Uh, now, that's a big difference, say, from the Orban case, where it might be that he has violated, I and mean, he's openly said that he he talks about illiberalism, you know, so he's hmm. clearly not a liberal. Um, no. But this idea of violating uh, individual rights, um, hmm. you know, this, this is not what these bills do. These bills are actually protecting individual rights. Uh, it's just that they're protecting them against an institutional or administrative actor. So, yeah, it's it's a bit of sort of sleight of hand. I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit like saying, you know, if, if, a, if a gang uh, comes to my door and won't let me leave my house, the only way I get my freedom back is if the gang is arrested by the police. Um, and and, and yeah. so that involves, yes, the government is protecting my freedom. Uh, or, or equally, if we if we think about a corrupt, you know, you can have a corrupt institution, a corrupt mm. police department that the government has to take into special measures, a corrupt school that's taken over by religious fundamentalists, which has happened in Britain, and that has to be taken into special measures. Mm. An example might be in, and, and you've you've, had, you've seen this before in history, like a the University of Mississippi didn't admit any black students the government had to step in to protect the equal rights of black. You know, so, th- so there's a lot of instances. And so it's a very much a red herring, I think, to say this is illiberal urbanism. One of the criticisms that often comes up is what is the freedom for? Why, who are the people that are going to be protected under this bill? Is it Holocaust deniers? Uh, I saw a criticism of, of, uh, of the bill and of uh, specifically of you and of, uh, Matthew Goodwin, which I um, I recently had on the podcast as well, and uh, and and one of the criticisms was that this is not a freedom of of speech bill at all. It's an hate speech bill because what's what will be allowed is, and it was it was a, a par- parliamentary parliamentarian from uh, the Labour Party, I should say, Matt Western, who who wrote this, and uh, so he said that the the speech that will be protected is something that will hurt the freedom of minorities, of women, of uh, vulnerable groups. 
So uh, the academic, they will act, it will actually uh, decrease the academic freedom if if you protect academic freedom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I find this to be one of the most common arguments that the left, when they engage, that they make. And actually, I think it's quite it, it has a lot of authoritarian overtones in the sense that you know, if you say something that offends somebody, that somehow you are impinging on their freedom. So they're confusing freedom to speak, let's say, with some sort of notion of feeling good about yourself. Therefore, you feel empowered to speak. And actually, these things are, are different. And so they have this concept of equal speech. And then there's been some interesting work by an academic called Teresa Bejan, B-E-J-A-N on this, that their argument is a kind of equal speech argument that we have to give equal power and self-esteem to everybody in order to release their inner freedom and therefore by, you know, muzzling people who have too much speech power, we empower free speech. And it's, mm. it's, it's all that is, is a kind of Orwellian twisting of the meaning of, of ordinary language, which, which you see time and time again on the kind of cultural left, um, by talk, essentially talking about a kind of redistribution of power as, as freedom. You know, it's a bit mm. like the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, North Korea, right? I mean, what is the term democracy yeah. doing there? And so, yeah. yeah, I think it's no, it's a reason we can have a discussion about equality versus freedom, but don't mm. pretend that that equality is freedom. It is not. It, it is a different value, a different principle. So the idea that, yes, people who are confident and maybe from uh, certain groups, they may speak up. Well, maybe men speak more than women. So if we muzzle... Uh, a certain mm. proportion of men that somehow that makes women feel more free. Well, maybe or maybe not, but the principle there is not freedom. The principle mm. is you're using uh, some kind of force, usually administrative force, to uh, pr- you know to suppress the speech of certain people um, mm. in order to achieve some kind of notion of, of equality. F- fine, if, if that's what you believe in. Call it equality, call it egalitarianism. I would call it a, a form of cultural socialism. So similarly, in this case, when when they're talking about so-called hate speech, uh, speech, and of course, the definition of that is very elastic, right? So, you know, saying that a woman is an adult human female or defending the gender critical feminist position, uh, might, you know, that is interpreted as hate speech towards the trans community. Uh, you know, what that does is essentially shut down that debate. Uh, supposedly empowering trans people. Uh, and of course, there's never any science, never any evidence for any of these claims. So mm-hmm. my only view on this is that this is a violation of freedom of speech um, it, in the name of equality. That's all it is. And so mm-hmm. I don't I don't go along with those those arguments. No. Many times these discussions boil down to questions of definitions and uh, a battle over over words and what they mean, uh, and one of those is, of course, what is uh, what is the legitimate field of politics. So, in in your science, you you make a very convincing case, I would say, that there's a, a small group, uh, the group of right wing uh, uh, academics is much smaller than the group of left wing academics and the conservative, but. It, what a person from the left would say, perhaps, if you from from that uh, majority, is that no, that's not at all the case. It's just that there are fewer people now who are sexists 
who are misogynists and who are racists uh, or colonialists uh, in their attitudes. And uh, if they feel that they self-censor, then that's a good thing because that means like these are people that, that can be compared to people who are in favor of slavery after it was abolished. So if those people felt that their academic freedom were, if they were self-censoring, that was a good thing. And now it's a good thing that people are self-censoring if they hold these abhorrent views. That's, that's, a, that's not a sign of backwardness. That's a sign of progress. Yes. And um, yeah, so what's very interesting, I think, about what you say there is the uh, moralization of debate and politics. Um, and so increasingly, the distance between sort of being a racist and sexist in, in the minds of particularly radical progressives, the distance between that and being a conservative has collapsed entirely, right? So the mm. ease with which the term fascist will be trotted out, somebody who wants to, you know, control the border, a fascist, yes. right? So, so this mm. collapsing of all nuance and you might not know that you're you're talking to one of the most famous fascists in in sweden right now right right (laughs) a great honor honor for you (laughs) right right yes and and uh you know and and so so that's that's sort of partly uh, part of what what was going on i mean i there's an interesting question that i i did a survey and asked about you know you, you a question which says people who disagree with me politically are immoral right do you agree or disagree with that statement? And this is U.S. data. If you take white progressives under the age of 40, it's nearly 50 percent who, who mm. would agree with that statement. Uh, and, and actually, there's other work by some of the some political scientists at the University of Southern California, Dennis Chong and, and Morris Levy and Jack Citron, that's showing this, you know, this growing intolerance amongst a younger generation on the left. I mean, the left mm. actually... Older leftists are quite a bit more tolerant than younger leftists. This is a big generational divide. And the the views of those younger leftists, I think, have been shaped by the sort of Herbert Marcuse uh, repressive tolerance, which sort of suggests that it's okay to repress the speech of so-called powerful groups, i.e. conservatives Mm. in his his thinking. That has become mainstream in a way. Mm. Um, and, and, And it sort of reflects this cognitive bias, uh, which is called my side bias in the, in the psychology literature. Um, and it's, uh, there's been some good writing on this that, uh, you know, these people earnestly believe that the other side is uh, morally reprobate, fascistic, etc. And they don't draw any distinction between that and some of the extreme uh, things you talked about, the racism and the sexism. So they're justifying to themselves what is effectively just political prejudice. It's as if I was generalizing about, uh, you know, women or, or Muslims or black people and they, you know, mm. all Muslims are terrorists or something. I mean, that is sort of mm. the way that it's the same mental process is just applied to a different political category. And, and this is, um, I mean, if you look at, attitudes towards uh, marriage uh, to other groups in the United States. You, you, I, I think you bring up this in White Shift as well, that you have much more uh, uh, tolerant views of your daughter or son marrying a person uh, from the other race. If you're, if, you're, if you're white, for example, so marrying a black person. But if you ask them in the 50s, they, they, a, a majority was not okay with it. But now it's the, the, the number is down to, I think, 10% or something like that. The last time I looked at least. Uh, and But if you look at, if you ask, ask the question, would you be okay if your son or daughter married a, 
uh, a person from the other party that you vote for, so a Republican or a Democrat, then the numbers were very low in the 50s, but now they are uh, very high. Uh, people ha- have a take objection to to that. Uh, and I, I would say just from um, like experience here in Sweden, we have something similar, uh, but it's just the Sweden Democrats really that have that. There is no, if you look at people out groups, if you, uh, and you, you get to label, you get to pick from a very long list of out groups, then Sweden Democrats are, uh, I think it's a fourth of the people in Sweden hate them. Uh, and I think mus- Muslims, that's 7%. So it's just as a uh, point of reference. And, uh, of course, you can argue that people are answering these uh, questionnaires and surveys in a way that they feel are, is tolerable. So you, you, even if you would hate Muslims, you wouldn't cross that because you know you shouldn't. But, right. Well, but, yeah, but, but it's, ac- yeah. it's acceptable to hate Sweden Democrats, so you can just let it out. Right. And, and, and there's been, uh, you know, again, some academic research in, in where they've asked people to give money to different people with different characteristics. And you can see that prejudice, political prejudice is, is much more common, far more common than race and, and gender prejudice. Uh, but this is, yeah, as you say, it's acceptable. Um, and, and it's the same with uh, political discrimination. So nobody would think twice uh, about saying it's horrible that one in three British academics wouldn't hire a, a female academic or a black academic. Um, that would just be abhorrent. Whereas mm. to say I wouldn't hire a Brexit supporter, you know, that, that they think that's fine. They mm. don't understand that it's exactly the same mental process. It's exactly yeah. all your, you know, the difference between discriminating on the basis of religion and on the basis of philosophical belief as embodied in, in political choices is, is mm. zero, uh, actually, because, you know, and, and so, and, and these things have a strong, you know, ideology. There's a strong heritable component just as there is with uh, other kinds of, of characteristics. And religion has a strong voluntary component. You know, you can opt into the a religion or not, as you can a philosophy. So, yeah, I know there was another good paper, I think, by a guy called Spencer Case on, on this. Um, hmm. But but so th- this is really where we're at. And this is one of the reasons I think we need in addressing this. I think the key wedge is to try as much of, as possible to bring in philosophical and political discrimination. So if we're going to talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion on race and gender, we've got to talk equally about diversity, equity, and inclusion on political and philosophical beliefs. So that would mean monitoring the uh, ideology and politics of people applying for university positions and how many get them. It would mean seeking to diversify a faculty where there are no conservatives. It would mean how is your hostile climate for people of different beliefs. It would mean, you know, if you fire somebody on the basis of, of certain philosophical beliefs, like gender critical feminism, that's also similar, should be treated similarly to firing them on the basis of religious beliefs. So if we actually were to bring in that, I think that would really make the left think a lot harder. Right now they're getting a pass. They Only their categories that they care about are protected, whereas the categories that conservatives care about are unprotected. Um, and I think one of the challenges is to try and broaden the number of categories so that it includes those that other, you know, that the conservatives care about as well. I, I, uh, I, I've talked to, uh, this is a, uh, a problem in uh, if you talk broader in other organizations as well, of course, I mean, when we wrote uh, 
the, the book that I, uh, Genus Doctrinen, uh, me and Anna-Karin Windham, one uh, in the Hunters Association, one of the, one of the biggest Hunters Association, they were uh, the editor-in-chief, he wrote an editorial, and he referenced that book because then they had to do uh, a gender-critical, uh, I mean, um, like investigate the toxic masculinity and inclusion of females in the hunting teams. And I mean, they, they are uh, voluntary organizations where they just like organize. It's, it's not something that is government led. It's just people coming together and hunting. And it's one of the biggest pastimes in Sweden. We are a, a huge number of hunters because we have, <laughs> we're basically right. just a big forest. Uh, but, uh, so he wrote that and it's like, is this really what our, our, uh, tax subsidized, uh, uh, money should go to subsidizing this, uh, this, this kind of research? And uh, one of the biggest, uh, uh, like forest forestry companies, uh, wood companies, uh, uh, who owns a lot of forests in Sweden, they just called him in and said, like, uh, you have to come in for a like an, a, a discussion on your of your values. Eller vad grund? It's called in Sweden. We always talk about that. It's basically like a value, the, our <laughs> fundamental values. Right. And all organizations work with that. And he, but he recorded it, so he upped the ante, uh, yes. and he asked them, and he asked them questions, right? And uh, they were not prepared to answer any questions because the dynamic was the, the dynamic was, of course, that they should question him, and because they were so sure of themselves that they were the good ones, right? And he was the bad one. But uh, unfortunately, it ended with uh, them kicking all of the hunters out from their forests. Uh, if from that part of uh, uh, the organization, that, that organization at least, who had that paper, so it's part, it's a bigger problem. But w- one of the uh, problems with uh, including like uh, diversity of viewpoints in in this is that you have to uh, register people, and and one of the criticisms has been that it's sort of a McCarthyism that would it could be used uh, to something worse it would be worse not not better because you would you would have to be so explicit all the time with your views that it would maybe increase conflicts and it also might give people recruiters more reason to not hire you really is that a, a danger here I don't, because I don't think things can really get any worse than they are. Um, and I also, a couple of things. First of all, the proposal I make is not for an affirmative action program on the basis of political beliefs. So affirmative action for conservatives. What I'm saying is you can do whatever you, you know, it's, all I'm saying is you have to have equal action. So if you want to do affirmative action on race and gender, you have to do the same on political belief. If you don't want to do anything on race and gender, you don't have to do anything on political belief. But you can't do one and not the other. I should say, by the way, that in surveys that I've done, there is bipartisan support for this. Most people think you should do as much uh, on political belief as you do on race and gender. It's not particularly controversial, um, but it's not happening anywhere. Uh, the other thing I should say is that, you know, this is you can monitor just as you tick a form for race and gender, you can tick a form on uh, how you voted or, or your ideology. So the firm has got 
data. It's not saying it can identify an individual, but it has data and it can then look at its processes. Um, mm. So I don't particularly see that this is a, you know, and the other side will always scaremonger to prevent any change. Right. Yeah. Because they don't want this to happen. They want to be able to keep on business as usual. What I would say is that business as usual, certainly for anyone from the anti-woke side, is a disaster. So we have to start looking at radical solutions. Um, and this isn't, you know, this is not compelled. So you don't have to, to do this. But then if you aren't going to do any sort of protection on political and ideological viewpoints, then you can't do uh, your, your race and gender agenda. That's all I'm saying. I, I should say one other thing, by the way, is that it's very interesting, the example you cited of the hunters um, and the forestry company. It turns out, you know, actually my, my father's in the forest industry business and has done a lot of work in Sweden. And it's, it's interesting, you know, these people who are running the sawmills in Sweden and the worker, I mean, they're certainly not the wokest, you know, they're not woke, really. Um, And yet it's very interesting that they feel the need to be the enforcers of this very radical progressive ideology, right? So I think that's telling us something, that this is actually part of the everyday banal tissue, the background music of public morality. And it's gotten Mm -hmm. into the background public morality and therefore even these institutions like a forest products company that aren't don't have a bunch of highly educated radical activists uh, running them or working in them. Even they feel the need to bend the knee to this ideology. Um, And this is one of the reasons I say that actually we need to kind of focus not just on a few blue-haired activists. Um, We actually need to sort of think much more deeply about that public morality. What is a taboo? How did we get these taboos? And starting to sort of rebalance the way those taboos operate because they're too extreme and people are too willing to sort of uh, bow their head to these things. They need to be a lot more critical and there, there needs to be much more of a due process and a jurisprudence around how these punishments are applied and what the principles are that under underpin these stigmas and taboos. So in this bill uh, for freedom of speech, it's proposed that there will be like an ombudsman which is a, a, a great word because it's a Swedish word. Uh, it's a okay. word from Swedish. Of course it is. It's so, it's so progressive <laughs> that there will be an ombudsman. Uh, uh, so, but it will be, so it's basically you're setting up what, what the proposal is in Britain is that they will set up uh, an ombudsman who will uh, protect the academic, the individual uh, against the institution if they, their academic freedom has been violated or they, they uh, like, there was a uh, sanction towards them that were unfair, uh, according to the bill, or uh, they were fired, or or some such. Is that a f- is that a fair s- summary of the yeah? Of that's the, right. Uh, function? Yeah. So so individuals can go around their institutions and appeal to the new uh, academic freedom directorate, um, mm-hmm. ombudsman on that directorate. So that's one route towards undercutting the power of the universities to suppress speech. The other route, which and I've just been in in some discussions on this, is this question of uh, granting a right to sue the university for violation of your academic freedom. Mm. Um, And now that there's a big debate over this right to sue and how whether you have to first go through process through your university, which allows the university to drag it out over a period of years and therefore neutralize this uh, legal threat. And. Mm. 
how to think about making it difficult for universities to do that. So there's also the right to sue, but then there is also this ombudsman on this government body. Now, of course, this is all could be seen as political in the sense that if Labour, the left-wing party, gets in, who doesn't really believe in academic freedom, if they get in, which looks likely next time, they could, to some degree, undo these structures or, or water them down in a way that... Mm. Now, now I think that's okay in a way if this is made public and it's, it's in the media. People understand if you vote for the Labour government, you're going to lose your academic, you know, we're going to have far more incidents of violations of academic freedom. That becomes part of the political debate. I mean, it's not okay, but I mean, at least I would rather have that situation. So people know this is a party that doesn't support academic freedom. So that's part of the, yeah. you know. Um, but, but yeah, so that's the idea is that it'll give people recourse against their university rather than having to just submit to whatever their university says. How hopeful are you that this will uh, change something? Because uh, sometimes you get... Um Uh, well, uh, well. First, I would say that Matt, Matt Goodwin, when I t- asked him about this, uh, he said that he was really conflicted about it, really, because ideologically, or his own beliefs, is that uh, the government should stay away from high, higher education to uh, give it more academic freedom. The institution should be independent and should autonomous to uh, to a large degree, so that you can have your Uh, academic freedom and the state should not uh, sanction you in, other w- in uh, any way. But now, that the, because of how the problem, as you stated earlier, that the, 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 um, the limits on freedom of speech and on academic freedom and your freedom as an individual is coming from the institution, not the state, then the state must go in. So he was conflicted about that, but he, he had landed on that it must be done. Uh, and... and When I talk about this in in in, in so, some of these measures, perhaps in Sweden, I, I find that many who are on the right but are, have a liberal basis for their beliefs or liberal conservatives, they are very hesitant to stand behind something that actually uh, costs more tax money or increases the number of government agencies. Uh, are you finding that as well, or is that uh, a different? Is it a different picture in in Britain? No, it's the same picture, and, and you see that, pick that up in the survey data as well in the U.S. and Britain. Um, there is the older, more libertarian right, anti-government right, uh, who don't really understand. They basically think that all all censorship comes from government. Government's always the problem. Uh, I think that I, I hate to be cruel. I think those people are useful idiots for the sort of woke takeover of our institutions. Uh, and the sooner we can sort of reconfigure conservatism away from that kind of 1980s thinking, the, the, the better. Because the truth of the matter is, you know, I, I say, well, institutional autonomy is a nice, a nice thing to have. Ideally, we would. I want to have as much of it as possible, uh, but individual autonomy is number one when it's mm. clashing with institutional autonomy. So if the government can liberate individuals from institutions, then I think that it has to do so. The other thing I would say is government is working with the grain of the law. Generally, the law is being broken by institutions and not being enforced What this bill does is it essentially gives government agencies the power to enforce existing legislation against mm. 
universities that are violating that legislation. So that's the first thing I would say. Now, the other thing I think is even more broadly, if we step away from just the problem of universities, I think we're moving to a situation now because of the aggressive um, cultural left takeover of our institutions. And this, we could include this, extend this to schools and, and hospital trusts and a whole set of institutions, including tech firms, for example, that this desire to use institutions to censor speech has been increasing. So the politicization of institutions from below by activists, the only way, the only chance the right conservative and classical liberal side has to defend freedom of speech uh, is to use elected government because every other institution is controlled by the anti-speech side. The only chance the sort of pro-speech side has is to centralize and remove power over cultural matters um, away from these institutions. And and I know that a lot of libertarians hate that, the idea of centralization. But I, until they get through that mental block, all they're doing is simply handing more censorship power to the other side. So what we need actually is very, very fine-grained, clear guidance from Government, elected government, which again is the only institution that uh, the, the conservative side, classical liberal side, can can hope to control nowadays, because of selective recruitment into these other institutions. They need to use government to actually reform these institutions to make them freer, um, and that's not a contradiction. And we've seen that this in the past many times in history. Um, but what this also means is the conservative side has to elevate these cultural issues to a higher position than progressive political parties. Progressive political parties can say, oh, uh, hands off, uh, it's not our business because all of their allies are essentially cleaning house in these institutions. It's only the right who have no power in the institutions that need to make this a bigger priority than the left. So when the left says you're stoking the culture war, Conservative parties need to say, sorry, we're defending the values of our civilization. This is not some little, you know, tempest in a teapot going on on campus. This is fundamental to who we are. And conservative parties need to do that. They're doing that in the U.S. Ron DeSantis in Florida or Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. They are much more aware of this and politicizing these so-called cultural war issues is going to be central to pushing back on the illiberalism that we see. Now, of course, there's always a certain danger with government. The other side gets in and they do things you don't like. What I'd say is hmm. the downside risk to uh, progressive governments coming in is much is relatively low because hmm. they're already doing whatever they want. So whether they have a government in there that is friendly to them, it's not going to make much difference. However, it will be very important if a conservative government does academic freedom the left government comes in, undoes that. Then we've suddenly got an issue that can be in the press. We can say, hey, all of a sudden, no platformings have shot up and firings and the surveys that we've been doing every year are now showing self-censorship's gone up. That's under mm -hmm. your government. So now we've got mm -hmm. a debate. It's like with the critical race theory in schools issue. That's now a mm -hmm. political debate in the U.S. when it wasn't. So, yeah, yeah I think I, this is something where this is where we need to go. I think uh, it was... Abigail Schreier, which I've also had on the podcast, she wrote an excellent book, uh, Irreversible Damage, about trans uh, trans kids and treating them from gender dysphoria in a very, very early age. But she wrote about Christopher Rufo, uh, like why people, and he's one, he's been organizing parents uh, all over the United States when it comes to these uh, critical race theory, especially in, in, in the curriculum and in their uh, 
children's education, and he's been helping them organize. And many conservatives were were very critical of him. And she said, yeah, he's winning. <laughs> right. And I, I actually think she was right uh, because there is a... Uh, like uh, uh, some t- romanticism on the traditional conservatives conservative side that of, of uh, uh, I, I love J.R.R. Tolkien as every uh, everyone listener on this podcast knows uh, because I always bring him up in every conversation but he was talking about a long defeat but of course he was talking about uh, the the from a Christian perspective but I think the long defeat as a conservative identity is uh, has a, an, a romanticism. You should all you should be on the losing side, and but but you're you're right at least. So when somebody starts winning, then you get nervous because that demands something from you as a conservative. And then there was a, a recent seminar here in Sweden of the market friendly think tank, right wing think tank, uh, Timbro organized, and uh, one of the participants, uh, and they were celebrating a new translation of Edmund Burke's. Um, notes on the revolution uh, but he, he said that oh basically a conservative's role is to uh, just say no and sit back and not participate in the change and uh, I mean sometimes yes perhaps but I don't I think that's a cop-out and uh, uh, and maybe then I'm not a conservative at all if that's the case because my my uh, if you look at personalities a conservative personality is somebody who does that, but a conservative political political conservative, I'm I, I would I would say that you, you, you maybe you should have a, a more of a proactive uh, <laughs> stance than that. I hope because otherwise you you will participate and uh, in your own destruction basically if you don't do anything about this because the people who are populating the the big companies, the tech companies, they are educated at universities. So that's why we focus a lot of, a lot of the time on schools and universities, because that's the, the that's where the people are educated. And they take that education into the firms and into the government agencies, into the government. And then it gets it's too late, perhaps, to change a whole generation of people. Well, yeah, because I think I mean, I think the fundamental problem with conservatism as as we've inherited it is it has been optimized for fighting the Cold War, for fighting the battle between economic socialism and economic liberalism. So Mm. government is the enemy. Anything that centralizes power is the enemy because it'll stifle the free market and economic growth. Well, I mean, we can have a, a, a debate over the, the relative balance of markets versus welfare state. But in a way, those questions, I think, are much more second order and secondary now. Uh, and, you know, there are th- those problems are, are largely going to take care of themselves in the sense that people want nice government services. They want low taxes. The markets don't want you to run a big deficit. You don't have much room to, to move. The much more interesting question in terms of defining who you are culturally conservative or, or, or on the left is cultural now. Um, and so we've got to move away from the kind of economic Cold War mentality to what I would call a cultural Cold War mentality where we've got a new set of philosophies vying for control, cultural socialism 
and cultural liberalism. Cultural socialism is about uh, equal outcomes for identity groups and prevention of emotional harm, i.e. being offended, uh, to uh, even the most sensitive member of a, of, of a historically disadvantaged identity group. That is what cultural socialism is, and it is mm. taking over our institutions. Now, the question is whether the right wants to sit back and allow itself to be conquered and told what to do, or do they want to fight back? And ultimately, I think they have to uh, fight back. And they, the only way it can be done is through government now, because, and now, of course, it can also happen online. Online is a major site of resistance. We know that. But in these areas where there's not a free market, like universities and schools uh, or, or hospitals or other institutions, the only way to reform them is through a government-led conservatism. And so I think slowly the penny is dropping uh, that the old libertarian right, they're starting to realize all they're doing is being useful idiots again for this utter defeat and that, you know, that they are going to have to move. And actually what you see is people like Rufo and Ron DeSantis, who Rufo has advised, they are, they don't have necessarily an intellectual guiding philosophy. They just are reacting and doing things that work and almost in that sort of pragmatic, practical way. But in so doing, I think they are defining a new philosophy, which I would call a kind of reformist rather than libertarian conservatism. And I'd say the same on the schools issue, by the way. Um, opting out of schools and universities to, to set up your own, I mean, that's great, but I think that is no solution because the number of people who do that is small, number one. School choice is great, but actually the reality is most people choose schools on the basis of how good they are in getting their kid into the top university. They don't care necessarily about whether they're being indoctrinated or not. So the only real way you get at this uh, is through uh, government and legislation and regulation. So in the UK case, schools aren't allowed to indoctrinate, but that's not being enforced. So you need to have, you need to set up a bureaucracy that can actually execute the law and prevent schools from indoctrinating, which means you have to be very detailed. You can't say, oh, anti-racism is a consensus value, but Black Lives Matter is is not a consensus, so you can't say get everybody to cheer for Black Lives Matter. But you can, um, you know, the problem is if you say anti-racism is a consensus value and you don't define racism, then if somebody says Ibram X. Kendi and systemic, uh, the, the whole critical race theory is part of anti-racism, therefore it's consensus and it's not political. In fact, if you were as a government to say this is actually political, it's not moral, you can't. Mm teach it as fact, then you will shut it down very effectively. Um, so that's what we need to be doing is getting into that level of detail. And it's, it's got to be government led. Mm. Thank you very much, Eric Kaufman, for being part of Rock Höger. Thanks, Ivar. Thanks very much. Och stort tack till dig som har lyssnat. Gå gärna in och skriv en recension på Apple Podcasts eller i den app där du lyssnar på podden. Och detta är alltså en del av en större publikation på Substack med samma namn som podden. Och den som prenumererar där kan även ta del av de texter jag skriver. Gillar man det man läser och hör får man gärna bli betalande prenumerant för 5 euro i månaden eller 50 om året. Då får man ta del av lite exklusivt extra material också. Du hittar rubbet på ivararpi.se. Och har du några frågor eller synpunkter kan du alltid maila mig på ivararpi Vi hörs igen.